Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. For the last, well, two of the last three Mondays and now today, we have had what we like to call Mayoral Monday. We are heading into an election at the end of this month, October the 24th. A few weeks ago, we had Andrea Horvath on. Last week, we had Keenan Loomis on. And today, uh, a man who um, I think most people know the name and the voice. He's he's a musician. He's a runner, a marathoner. He's a former radio host. He's an MP. He's been an MP. He's been a mayor. And now he's trying to be mayor. Oh, he's a councillor as well. And now trying to be mayor again. Bob Bertina. Bob, how are you today? I'm fine, Scott. Thanks for having me on. I listen, I really appreciate you doing this. Um, we've got a lot of things I want to get to because uh, all these these interviews, the time is way too short to get through them all. So uh, we do what we can. During your uh, videotaped submission the other day, you, you were not able to make it to the televised uh, mayoral debate because you came down with COVID. So you, you gave a, if people watched it, you gave a videotaped uh, submission. One of the lines you said was, the truth is this city that we love so much is broken. Bob, what what do you see as broken within the city of Hamilton? Well, what the evidence of the break is a couple of things uh, come right to mind, and you know what I'm talking about: the sewage spill, four years. Where's the accountability? Twenty six million dollars in counting to find out who was telling, not telling the truth about the slippery pavement on the Red Hill, uh, and I could go on and on, but. Uh, those uh, two simple things combine to tell you that thing is not, things are not right uh, within the management, the administration of the city. And that, that's not council. That's from the city manager's perspective, all of the people that, uh, in her case, Jeanette Smith's case, that she's involved with. So that's something, of course, that uh, tried to be resolved in the year 2000 when, uh, you may recall, a man by the name of Doug Lightjack was uh, the city manager and council rose up against him because he was trying to fix things. And eventually he got uh, a very nice payment uh, and council got what they wanted. And uh, really council shouldn't be interfering on that side of, uh, of the ledger. But what I would say is I would be supporting the city manager, unlike I, I don't think the mayor did at the time, uh, to do what he or she needs to do to make sure that we have an efficient and effective administration. Based on what you're describing, though, when you talk about the asphalt or you talk about the sewage, and again, those were not necessarily council things; those were staff mm-hmm. things. That's right. That's would what you I'm talking about? Would you be then? Uh, am I reading that you're saying I'm okay if the city manager wants to clean house and get rid of a bunch of people who haven't done their jobs? The city manager needs to know that the mayor would be completely supportive of a review of strengths and weaknesses and uh, the willingness to carry out what needs to be done to make sure that we have an effective and efficient city administration. That, that's, there's one employee of the city council, and that's the city manager, and everything on that other side uh, falls under his or her uh, power and authority. There, there is a perception, and we've heard, and you've heard, uh, that a lot of people have said, look, I, I don't disagree that the city is broken, that there are problems, mm-hmm. but the way that problems have happened is because we've had the old guard who has been in there and hasn't fixed it. I know you haven't been there for the past eight years. You've been working mm-hmm. as an MP, but what do you say to people who, who would say, yeah, but Bob, you've been there. We don't want the old guard back. We want a clean slate. We, we don't want people who have already been in that position. Well, first of all, I'm talking about uh, the city manager's oversight on the administrative side. 
not the council side. The council and the somewhat newer council is coming in. Um, I think that our early discussions as, as a council, should I be the mayor, would be the support of the city manager in de- determining um, how to best operate uh, with the staff uh, that's in place or whether changes would have to be made. So I think you'd have to make that clear uh, from the beginning. And I, I believe there would be a willingness to do that because look what we have. You can, you could have bought a lot of things for $26 million and what are you going to get? You're going to get a bunch of paper that says this guy wasn't doing a very good job. There is for sure the staff thing that you're talking about. There's also, there's been a lot of people commenting that they're also dissatisfied with the tenor of the council over the last number of years. Um, and one of the things that they've said is I don't want to listen to council squabbling in it again and again and again. There's no doubt that while you were mayor, uh, there was conflict at times. You didn't always get along with council. What would be the reason that we would believe that if Bob Bertina was mayor again, that there wouldn't be more conflict and more sniping and that council would be more, there'd be greater decorum around the council table? Well, there was greater decorum when I was the mayor, and and you're going to snicker at that at first, but I could show you uh, newspaper articles in The Spectator, which is never very kind to me about how people were surprised how well council was behaving. Council were snipping at me personally for reasons we don't need to get into right now, but the Manning Institute did a review of our city council and found out how well a council and the mayor got along, and I think it was something like 85% of the times I was in, uh, on the same side of the votes as the majority of council. So there's, there's two things to look at there. Uh, one are those sort of manufactured scandals that, that you're kind of referring to. But the other thing is that council was, when I was in place, properly chaired. And that's as simple as that. And you do not have, in many cases, proper chairing of council and committee at, uh, currently or in the past. And I've seen it. And I, I, I've seen so often where someone sitting in the chair makes snide remarks about things that are being said around council. That's not the chair's job. The chair's job is basically to keep the speaking list and make sure that everybody stays on track. And so once again, I'll fish them out and send them over to you. Uh, A spectator article saying how surprisingly well the decorum is since I took over as mayor. Let's get to... Let's get to some of the things, and again, there's so many things that I wish we could talk about. Let's get to some of the things that are directly on the platform, um, and we can and people can find this. And I want to say, and I've said it with all the other ones, a votebertina.ca is the website. I would encourage everyone to go and give it a read. It's important to know what we're talking about here. Votebertina.ca. Housing is a huge issue in this election. There's no question about that one. Um, the bottom line of your housing strategy, the bottom line is pretty much similar to Andrea's and Keenan's in that the answer is we need a lot more units. That, that, that yeah. we, I think everybody agrees upon. How do you get us there? Well, first, most important thing is a relationship with, uh, with the province and the premier. Um, the, the availability of land, you know, land is essential to creating housing supply. So we'll get an inventory with the provincial government of what lands that could be made available, plus the inventory that we have ourselves in the city. But I think there's still a lot of provincial land that that, uh, could come into play. And then next, we need to review with the province how uh, we would conduct ourselves in terms of development charges and 
so many other charges that uh, the builders claim are delaying or making more expensive projects. One of the things that really uh, makes projects more expensive is time. And any time delay adds to the cost of a project. So I think most of us, to be fair, have been talking about streamlining the process and making sure that there's enough resources there. But in my case, I think that uh, 30% of all of the land that's going to be developed along the LRT corridor should be affordable housing. It should be designated inclusionary zoned uh, to that effect so that we will know that of all those buildings that may be going up, a lot of it, 30% of it, will be dedicated to affordable housing. And, and I mean, you, you're, uh, and we got a, a few seconds left before a break here. In, in your platform, we, we hear a lot about geared to income or affordable housing. What about the general housing stock? Is there anything that can be done about that? Because not everybody will qualify for affordable housing or geared to income housing. People just want to be able to buy a home. Yeah, you know, for a mayoral candidate to say, well, you know, instead of having to buy a $700,000 mortgage, you get one, uh, you will make it so it's 500. You can't do that. But a, a number of other factors have to come into play, of course. But we do see, for instance, that costs or prices are going down, um, not to the point where it was, you know, in 2010 when I, when I was the mayor of the city of Hamilton, because I remember speaking to McMaster University students. Scott, this is absolutely true in 2012, and I said, I know that a lot of you may not be able to do this, but if any of you listening to me as the mayor of the city uh, want some advice, my advice would be to buy a house. And if you bought that house in 2012 or 13, you were way ahead of the game. So we we have to look at every aspect of, of affordability to determine what role we can play to keep uh, a price in line so that our kids don't have to move to another community to get a house. Bob, you have made it, I think, pretty clear that one of the things that you would like to see if you become mayor again is to see policing beefed up. Uh, there will be people who will absolutely agree with that. The question, though, is how do we pay for that? Does that automatically mean we're going to be facing higher taxes? Well, the budget covers every expenditure in the city, and this uh, city has been notorious for wasting money over the years, hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, there's 26 million sitting out there right now. Uh, and, and then when you look at the excessive use of consultants, I'd rather take uh, three policemen than three consultants in most cases or whatever the number is. So it's something that has to be broken down there. I'm not going to say it's impossible. There won't be an increase. And then the chief has to figure out how to incrementally uh, in, uh, grow the size of the police force to the numbers that it needs to be, because we are underserved. There's no question. Uh, that was the case uh, back when I was the mayor and on the police board, although we did add some officers at that time. But we're still under the, the national medians of, uh, of of big Canadian cities for, for policing services. So it, it has to be done. I mean, what, what's the alternative? Well, I mean, the, the, the challenge with this is that unless we get a strong mayor system, which we don't know what's going to happen with that, you, you would have one vote. And so, you know, we could, you, you could try to get more policing, I suppose, but is that, a, is that a thing that as a mayoral candidate, you can put out there as a campaign promise? Because it, I, I don't know that it could be promised. Well, I haven't made any promises. I have, I'm telling people that I'm on the side not like the other two people, the main uh, candidates, I suppose you would say, who are uh, on the, quote, de-task or defund uh, 
line uh, in their attitude toward policing. There's certainly no sense that those as leaders would attempt to bring counsel forward in terms of growing the police service to the uh, so that they have sufficient resources. And that what sets me one of the things that sets me apart from them is I'm determined that we're going to have a safer city because the police are going to have the resources to do as the police acts as adequate and effective policing. That's what I stand for. And that's what I intend to uh, work with council on. Let's stick with something that may lead to an increased cost, and that's infrastructure. It's something you've spoken about on your platform. It's a, it's a, it's a problem in this city. $3.2 billion, I think, was the last number, uh, the infrastructure deficit. Yeah. Who knows if that's gone up since then. Where does well, Hamilton find the money to do the things that we need to do, again, short of raising taxes significantly? Well, you know, we, we did City Hall over, and we used $30 million of the gas tax fund to do a 50-year-old building, which was inadequate, to, to the total cost of, I think, $75 million or maybe $100 million to do City Hall over. This is a waste of money. We needed 400,000 square feet. We still got that old City Hall. There are so many things that we have to look at in terms of, of how of our council uh, expenditures. And, and on many occasions, we don't even know where those budget numbers are moving around to. Because the LRT office in a previous iteration was paid for out of the roads department to some extent. Because I asked the, the director of finance, you show me the line item where the LRT office got this money. Well, uh, here's $1.5 out of roads. So that's infrastructure. People are playing games with that. And that's got to stop. And I intend to stop it. But will there be costs? Yeah, absolutely there will be costs. But we also, if uh, what, what will alleviate the cost to the taxpayer is the growth in the commercial industrial side. And if we can bring more businesses, more employment to the city of Hamilton, uh, some of that, it'll, it'll never go away, but we can make up for lost ground. So that's, I mean, that's an interesting idea that if we can bring more industrial and business to the community, that would shift the, the responsibility or the burden off individual taxpayers. However, you have said in your platform that you want to increase the industrial development charge. Wouldn't that make the city less enticing for businesses to come? No, it doesn't, because right now uh, they're getting a 50% reduction in uh, the development charges. It's from $24 to around 12 So if we decrease the deduction, it's still a deduction. Let's say uh, it went to 15 or $16 instead of 24 we are so competitive against the other communities around us, the Bramptons and Mississaugas and so on. There are people eager to get going. Uh, they need uh, infrastructure. They need services into uh, potential industrial lands to put the buildings up and, and get factories going and, and production facilities. So, no, uh, that statement that you made, of I'm not increasing the development charge. I'm reducing the um the bonusing the the, the but that, that i mean that's that's semantics that would be increasing the cost to the developers ultimately from what yeah, it is right now our development charges are listed at 24 dollars a square foot it will still be somewhat less than that and that is way less way less than competing communities you can you can look it up it's brampton doesn't even come close to us 
you have a couple times uh, for different topics since we've been chatting mentioned LRT. This is obviously a, I don't think that it's going to be the driving topic on the election uh, d- debate this time around. However, it's there and there's still stuff to figure out. You decided not to run for your federal seat again. Largely, we heard because you disagreed strenuously with your government's involvement in this. Well, now I you say with their, their failure to consult with me. Okay. Uh, if I said that I could not go door to door and give a rationale for the money that they promised the LRT because nobody ever told me what it was. After months and months of me sending emails and having discussions and, and getting useless little uh, replies like, well, I'm in favor of it, or thanks. That was the email response to a whole list of concerns I have. And then the next thing I hear is that uh, the prime minister's office has approved all this money. So how do I explain that to my, you know, and if there's a good explanation, I'd like to know it. But so do you, and so, so I said, I, I'm out on this one. So do you support then the LRT or do you not support the LRT? I support council's decisions. I've never supported the LRT project, but it's before us. It's up to council to, and, and that project is going to live and die in its own merit. You don't know, Scott, you can't tell me right now because I asked a whole group of media guys around me and pointed at them and asked them, how much is this going to cost or increase the residential tax? And nobody knows the answer. Now, there is an answer, and it's going up, but nobody said it. So council will have to deal with that. And I'm okay, pleased to, to lead that discussion and make sure that it's open and transparent and that we don't have the fiascos that are going on in Eglinton right now and in Ottawa. I think we're going to get an inquiry, the Eglinton one, and already the inquiry in Ottawa is brutal on how that was mismanaged. Let's take it one step further in the very brief time we have left. Uh, I'm of the opinion that when the final numbers are are calculated, the 3.4 billion that was the most recent price tag is probably not realistic. It's going to, I believe, be up from that. Uh, the province has guaranteed 1.7 billion. The federal government has promised 1.7 billion. If it does come in higher than $3.4 billion, uh, if you are mayor what do you do when that price tag, how, how do we make this either happen or not happen? What do we do with it if this is actually higher than what we expect? One of the achievements I had, Scott, was Randall Reef. We, we completed that project. We got all the funding in place. We got the liability straightened out. And then we put it out to tender. And guess what? Couldn't make the tender. It's not for me to say, oh, sorry, it's you know not 1.7, it's 1.8 or 3.9 or whatever the number is. It'll go through the RFP process, and somebody's going to have to come back with the numbers, and council will deal with it. What would be your advice to council if the number is higher and that money is not promised by the federal or provincial government? Well, the fact is, council is going to have to make their own decision on what I think will be a six, seven, eight percent residential tax increase, and that's up to council. The platform, you can find it online. It is votebratina.ca. Again, uh, as I've said with uh, both of the other two leading candidates, I would strongly urge you to go and give it a read so you know what we're talking about and what all the candidates stand for. Uh, Bob Bratina, very much appreciate taking a few minutes today to chat about yours. Thanks a lot, Scott. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
It is Monday. That means it is time to bring in our friend Don Robertson, owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys and ComChoice Realty. And the soon to be crowned, we believe, we hope, 2022 Dundas Citizen of the Year for his second time because, you know, Dundas people these days are winning things for a second time, Don. Yeah, I think I know who will get it this year. Well, I mean, you're, um, you have been friends and uh, business help and advisor and a lot of other things to Mackenzie Hughes over the years. That was, uh, that was pretty remarkable yesterday. It was, you know, it's one thing to win a PGA Tour event once, and I don't think you can do it even once as a fluke, but even so, to do it once, you could chalk it up to, well, he just had a mag- magical weekend where everything went right. To do it twice, that's, that's pretty elite. Well, of course, and those guys are all good. I mean, you watch them play, right? I mean, there is marginal difference in their abilities, and I think a lot of it starts coming down to um, the mental capacity of them and their ability to be able to handle the situation. I mean, the kid that he went into the final, was in the final pairing with, um, he didn't implode, but he, he was shot over par, and he was in the final group, and... Mac put himself in a precarious position off the tee on more than one occasion. Yes. But stayed focused, and that's the difference in his ability now to not let the outside things and you know they stay stay in the moment. But you can't lose a golf tournament on one shot. But I think if if your head starts getting a little cranky or kooky on you, you can. And his ability to stay focused yesterday was was outstanding, and he deserved to win, and he did. Yeah, and and back to your point for a second. I want to get to what you just said in a moment, but back to your point about you know all these guys are elite. That's why I think, unlike a lot of other sports, now you got to be good to be playing pro, no matter what. I mean, you got to be really good, but you can't luck your way into a golf win, into a PGA Tour win, because. There's 60, 70, 80 other guys. You can't have a lucky weekend and make it happen because there's too many good guys around there to do it. You have to be great for four days. And, you know, so, yeah, good for him. But, yes, as for the other thing, um, you know, that's something, Don, that, that McKenzie has, I think that if there's been a knock on him up to this point, it's the... The fact that there seems to be a hole or two holes at a time in a tournament that get away, and that's where the tournament goes. That 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 may explain why I think he's got four four uh, four second place finishes and a couple thirds. I don't know; it's a fair knock, but you couldn't say that about this one. Even when there was a bad shot, he stuck with it and made it better immediately. It did. It, at no point did this get away from him. Um, it didn't, and remember he was in the final group, um, the final group in the U.S. Open, Yep. and the ball ended up in a tree, and I mean, it was just a, a catastrophe, and yes, he, he hasn't been, he hasn't, uh, excelled at closing out tournaments, that's why I think yesterday, for guys like you and I that follow him, have a greater appreciation for what he did. I mean, he put it in the bunker on the first playoff hole, an impossible shot, had no green to work with, 
pops it up on the green and, and ties the guy and carries on so he can win it and then, you know, play in the same hole again. But, you know, I mean, he recovered from what was less than an ideal shot. I mean, he wanted to be beside the stick, not in the sand trap. But he didn't, you know, he didn't skull it across the green. He had a great shot. He had a shot that winners make when they win, and he did it. But and it I talked to him. Is my point. I talked to him after. I talked to him this morning. Actually, I talked to him really early this morning. He was on a flight that uh, got him home um, to his place in Charlotte, where he lives now. And I spoke to him at about 2 o'clock this morning when we were able to chat. And uh, one of the things that, you know, I said, like, you look really calm all the time. And he says, don't kid yourself. There's stuff going on inside. There is, <laughs> there are nerves. The heart is pounding. And yes, and the, and the thing that I was kind of surprised that he said was that, yes, you know, he, he was acutely aware of all those second place and third place finishes. That, that, that pops into your head at those moments, especially when you, when you make the, one of those bad shots. Like he made a really bad shot on the 18th tee where he put it into the trees. Yeah. And he admitted that, you know, you start having these thoughts pop into your head a little bit. Is it ever going to happen again? And that's where I, I, that to me is the most, he's always been able to play golf. He's always been able to hit the golf ball. That's, that's not the issue. It's, can you stay with it when something bad happens and not let it turn into a double bogey or something? And that to me was exactly as you say, that was the impressive part of this, that in those moments when it really could have easily got away, he didn't let it get away this time. No. And that's what I mean about the, I think it's changed mentally for him that he's now capable of saying, all right, I got myself here. So I got to get myself out of it. Not, I got myself here. Now I, there's no chance I'm winning. I'm screwed. I can't, you know, I'm done. You know, now he thinks he can make a shot to get himself out of it. And that is all mental. Like when I play golf, I'm mental, but if you played the way I did, you'd be <laughs> mental too. You know, I, I, I marvel at his putting ability. And, you know, I, I watch him putt, and I, I was watching him yesterday, and I thought, you know what, we have a similarity in our putting styles. There's only one that I can compare myself to is that we both use a putter on the green, and then the similarity <laughs> stops. But, but I got to believe his, that that's... He can read greens, man. He's, yeah, he's one of the best. He, like, it. Everybody talks about it, how good he is. He, He's one of the best in the world. He's probably one of the 10 best putters in the world. You can take issue with it. And his short game, this is why, and this is another reason why I think that he was able to have the focus and the belief because his driver can be erratic at times. There's no question. But when you have the short game that he does and the putting stroke that he does, I think you can, you're, you're allowed to then believe that you can recover after a bad shot and get back in it because he's shown over and over again, as you described, that he can. Well, that's like the, the errant key shot on the 18th during regular time. It didn't, it didn't spook him. You know, it's like, all right, so we're in a bit of a pickle here. Let's get out of it. And he does. And boy, and, and you know, what, what also helped him is, the other guy had a couple putts that he didn't drop, or they might That's, still be playing, or he might have lost, or he might. I mean, if he if if the other guy had yeah. sunk that putt on the first over on the first extra hole, uh, and he missed it by a few inches. But you know, that's um, that's that's the kind of thing that you 
that Mackenzie might have done a few tournaments ago that he didn't do now. I mean, his putting was was was. He, I mean, it's such a cliche, and so I apologize. But like as a putter, he's an assassin. Like he just, it, it's the cold heartedness that he can putt with and not seemingly get affected by it. Like every he he had one putt late in the round that rolled around and used the entire hole, but almost every other one was right dead into the middle of it. Like it was amazing how calm he was with those putts when the tournament was on the line. I, I was I was just totally impressed with how far he seems to have come mentally in his game. And that's that's maturity too, right? Like it's you've got two kids now. You're you know, things change. And uh they appear to have changed for the better for him. Not that having kids, but uh if you watch the interview, which I've I'm sure you did afterwards, and he said, "I, you know, I've dreamt of this moment where my wife and kids can come onto the green, and you know, that puts you in a different position in life and mentally. So it's just a big package for him, and he's got, you know, he's got another four or five good years. I mean, you really don't get old oh, at all, least, but at least, but age catches up to you. But I mean, he's just coming into his prime." Like, it's not like he's, you know, winning these things at 37 and 38. Yeah, no, no, he's, I I would, well, you know what, I can't say I expect him to win more tournaments because, as I say, I think it's incredibly hard to win on the PGA Tour. Um, Unless you're Tiger Woods or Jack Nicklaus, I, I don't expect anybody in particular to win any particular week. I mean, how many, how many times have we pointed to, you know, at the Masters? Well, this is Rory McIlroy's year because look how well he's playing. Or this is Dustin Johnson's year. And they finish nowhere near the leader. It's just, it's so hard to do it that I, I would never predict that someone, he may never win another tournament or he could win five more. I don't know. But he's, he's, he has, de- something has definitely changed for the better. Yeah. Well, he's, and good luck to him because, you know, he's such a nice young man and, but, you know, you, I just want to touch on you. You said, you know, this is Rory McIlroy's year. And this, when Tiger was on a roll, as soon as, whether it was Jordan Spieth or whoever it was, okay, so now we finally got somebody that can challenge Tiger every week. And they'd last for a little while, and then they'd die, you know, die off and go away. And then there'd be another guy, and Tiger just never stopped winning. But, the, but everybody's always trying to predict who the next great one is. And there's just so many good golfers out there. And I think Mac is now proven that he's one of them. It was two years ago he was in the top 30 in the FedEx, played in the final 30. So he's been flirting with it. Yep, no, he and, is. Uh, and, uh, the, other thing, the other thing he does, he plays well in the fall. When he was on the Canadian tour to get on the, uh, it's Corn Fed now, I forget what it was called then, um, dot .com tour, like he, he put the pedal to the metal, won one or two events on the Canadian tour to get up there. And then when he got his PGA card, he won in the fall on the dot uh, com tour. Like he's he seems to be a seasonal player where he excels, and this is the time of year. So good for him. He's got to do it all year. Good for him. And I will say, and, and I, I I touched on it a few moments ago. We got to run here, but um, there, uh, I as I say, I talked to him at you know two fifteen or something this morning. Um, I'll say this for McKenzie and you don't say this for everybody is, uh, I covered McKenzie back when he was, I don't know, 16 years old and an amateur scratching and clawing to, you know, he was doing well, but 
And there are people, and you know this as well, Don, there are people who, you know, they're happy that someone pays attention to them back when they are, for lack of a better word, a nobody. But then as soon as they become somebody, they forget where they came from. Uh, I'll say this for Mackenzie Hughes. He is not one of those, one of those people. He has, you know, I don't call him all the time. We don't chat all the time, but when I do, he always remembers where he came from and where he started from and who was interested in him once upon a time. And he takes the call every single time and is never too big for that now. And, and as I say, that's not everybody. That is not everybody. Wow. And I, I, I think that's great on him that he's kept that, that not just because he takes my calls. I don't mean that, but it's, it's evidence of the fact that he's never gotten too big for this. Well, when I, I and I don't text him, I, I mean, I, uh, I've very seldom text him, but he always gets back to me. And so you're right. He doesn't just, and I think probably he battled. I think, I think he's changed agencies now. Um, from when he started, but you know, sometimes the agents are saying, you know, Scott, you'll have to wait your turn. You can get in line with the, you know, the other media guys. And but Mac isn't like that. He'd see through that and say, no, you call me if you want. I'm sure that's the way he's treated you because he knows, right? He knows. I can, I can assure you, Don, there are people from even this community that are very difficult to get a hold of who once upon a time when they were nothing, essentially, when they were covered and they were happy for it, but now that there's something, they are very difficult to get a hold of. And so those who don't do that, they stand out. And that's, uh, I just wanted to say that about Matt, because it's absolutely true. So Don, are you a fisherman by any chance? Do you enjoy throwing a line in the water and trying to catch yeah. something? I do it on uh, about every two years. So I'm not avid. I don't mind it. I just never seem to put, I got I don't go out of my way to go fishing, but if I'm, you know, if it's up at a cottage and somebody said, do you want to go fishing? Sure, let's go. But I don't avidly fish. But I also don't cheat in tournaments. Yeah, so this story, so I, I, I love fishing. I go once a year. I go for a week. We rent a cottage and I go up and I go up fishing. And I'm wildly enthusiastic, but terribly horrible at knowing what I'm doing. I've got all the stuff, but I have no clue what I'm doing. I'm just out there. Because it's, you know, to me, it's mindless. It's good. It takes your brain off everything else going on in the world. Anyway, I don't do, as you say, these tournaments. However, in Lake Erie, there was the Lake Erie, Lake Erie Walleye Trail was this big time fishing tournament, big money apparently on the line. And these two guys won handily until all of a sudden, and I'm not sure that this is standard operating procedure or they just thought something was suspicious, but the organizer sliced open one of the walleye and found giant weights inside them. So you win by, you know, most weight, most cumulative weight. Their fish were weighted down with gi- like big, big, big weights. I don't know. They must've just shoved these down its throat or something. Is there anything, Don, when you, when you see it, when you hear a story like this, does it not lead you to believe there is literally no sport and no activity that somebody won't cheat in? Well, you would have thought that would be one of the last ones. Um, they usually call them sportsman events, and that's not very sports-like. Um, but I would have to say, yep, that's probably the last one. If they're putting weights in fish's stomachs so that they can win the weight contest, then I think the world is doomed. I think everybody cheats at everything. Well, so on the weekend, there was also a new poker scandal. Um, 
which is they're trying to figure out now, did someone cheat in poker? And last week or the week before we talked about the chess cheating accusations where somebody was accused of having vibrating beads in an orifice that was somehow directing what moves to make. Although that's, you know, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm still waiting for some sort of proof on that one, but it, it just, it, it, you're right. It just Don seems like we have reached a point where there is nothing in which somebody will not cheat to win, no matter how, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say how small the event, these things aren't small events, but I don't know. Somehow I would just hope that fishing and chess and well, poker, everyone cheats in poker or tries to, but I don't know. It, it just, it seems like we've, as you say, crossed that Rubicon where there is nothing left anymore where someone won't cheat. Isn't it sad that you can't just go out and do your best? And I mean, I don't want to be second at anything, but you know, if you're better at it than me or better at it that day than me, that's the way it is. You don't have to win everything. And you sure as hell shouldn't have to cheat to try and win. I Quite frankly, what do you get out of it? Like those Well, guys, they got money. Uh, they got money. Well, or they were going to get money. Got, there was... They probably got they probably got beat up too. Those fishing guys take that stuff pretty seriously. I think. Well, so here's the thing. So years ago, I am. We were talking about Mackenzie Hughes earlier. I am not a golfer. I, I golf probably twice, maybe on a good year, three times a year. I, I'm just I'm not a, a player. But I was in a, a tournament a number of years ago, and I happened to hit a great drive, one of the very few good balls I ever hit, and. Somewhere in the middle of the fairway, there was a rock. And I think it was like a 150-yard marker or something. Anyway, I don't know what it was. But my ball happened by cosmic coincidence to hit on the fly this rock in the middle of the fairway, which, of course, boy, oy, 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 it's a golf ball, gives it about another 100 yards. And, I, <laughs> and that happened to be the hole for the long drive competition. So I end up out driving the guy who had won the long drive in this tournament like nine years in a row, some gigantic man. I out drive him by 75 yards or 60 yards or something. And nobody <laughs> believes that I hit this shot. And I was like, you're right. I could hit this ball a hundred thousand more times and I would never replicate that shot, but I'm not cheating to win a griddle from the, from the prize table. But, <laughs> but the point of it is the reason I mention that is you're right. The chance that the idea that someone would cheat because there's someone else in this fishing competition who that day may have been a crappy fisherman, but that day hooked on to a giant fish. That's what it's supposed to be about. That that one time in your life that it goes right for you, that you can still win despite the odds of the people who are much, much better than you. And that's what it takes away. It does. And it's, I mean, I'll bet those guys won't be able to go in another competitive um, fishing tournament in the province. Never. They will get blackballed. Never. And and they should be. They should be blackballed. Like, really? Stuffing weights down a, I mean, it would be great to hear the explanation. I don't know. Maybe they ate it at the bottom of the lake. Sure they did. Yeah, all the fish that these guys caught and only the fish they caught ate the giant weights right before they ate the lure. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's that's well, very likely. This probably really adds to the term fishing story. 
Yeah, I, as I, I'm with you though. It, it to me, it's it's just a I don't know. It's a sad state of affairs in society when even something that should be now again, I know there's money at stake and all the rest, but something that should be as it pure is that too too naive a word? I don't know. As as fishing can be manipulated. So. I don't think so. I think it it's uh, as they said in Slapshot, they should feel shame. They, they should they should feel shame and they should go to the penalty box with with um what was his name lemieux uh denny lemieux i knew it was lemieux uh, don robertson with us denny lemieux if anyone has not watched Slapshot, that should be your homework assignment uh don how many times have you seen Slapshot in your life oh every time uh hatim i had one on the road that was the movie we watched on the first road game so 100 times i don't know i mean just <laughs> It's it's just a it's just a beauty. It really is. It is. Um, and I talked to guys that played in that era, and um, Kenny Mann was coaching. We had the senior team, and it was, and he played in the seventies. And they're all you know. We had the, then we start the real McCoys, and they're going, "Yeah, that's not true." And he went, "Oh, it's all true." Like <laughs> the, the fighting, and like it was that was the way it was in the minors. He played with a bunch of guys who were in there. Larry Maverty was in the movie, and he coached uh, a Kingston and Belleville in the OHL for years and years and years. Mm. So it was all in that era, and that's kind of how they lived. Well, and the 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 amazing thing was, then we got to move along here. But the the person who wrote it was a it was a woman who wrote it, and she was the sister of a pro player, and she had basically written this based on all the stories he would tell. The guy that was her brother who told all the stories in the movie ended up playing Ogie Oglethorpe. So you can uh, see who it, it, all, it all it all works together. Anyway, uh, speaking of hockey, Don, the Leafs are playing the Montreal Canadiens in a preseason game today. And let me ask you this. The Montreal Canadiens went a little bit off the board at the draft. They decided not to take Shane Wright that was pretty much everybody expected Shane Wright was going to go first overall. Didn't. Uh, they went with a, a guy, Yuri uh, Shlavkovsky, um, presumably because, you know, they say, okay, this is a guy who's got a higher ceiling. We think he's going to do more. Now, the amount of time that he has played in the NHL is, I think, three preseason games so far. But there seems to be almost panic at this point in Montreal that Shane Wright looks pretty good for the Seattle Kraken and Shlavkovsky even by the general manager's own standard has said he's been under impressive, unimpressive, underperforming, whatever word you want to use. How quickly do you think you can start to get a read on whether a guy is a whiff or just taking his time to come along? Like, should they be concerned at this point that he looks this un, you know, unimpressive or do you say it's three preseason games? Who cares? Give him five years. You got to give him some time. But what Dawson Matthews do? Score four goals in his first regular season game. That's what I mean. Set the bar bar a little high. But when you look at it, I mean, was it uh, Neil Yakarpov that Edmonton took first overall against no conventional wisdom? And he probably, because he was first overall, I, I haven't looked up his stats. He may have been in the league for three years and gone and that's a colossal mistake when Shane Wright for the last five years has been picked to go number one 
and Wright didn't even go two. Because I'm thinking so, and, to your point, yeah, to your point, Don. I'm thinking that it's one thing to say, okay, a guy who's a first round draft pick, you got to give him time. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I just wonder about the first or second overall pick. You kind of expect that they are going to come in and at least look noticeable on the ice. You know, and, and I go back, I think of Alexander Daig, another one for Ottawa years ago. There are certain guys that from day one, you look and you go, ooh, that doesn't look good. And I wonder if that's him or if in two months or a year, we're going to say, oh, he was fine. It was just, a, you know, getting his feet wet. Where did he play last year? And I, and I don't remember. I did know all that, but I've forgotten. I in Europe. Care. In Europe somewhere. So he's got a lot of... Um, a lot of new experiences in front of him. Um, so I don't think you throw up on your shoes after three exhibition games, but you might swallow hard when you're having a beer after the game going, this could look really bad for us. And the Montreal Canadiens are not exactly a low-profile team. No. And Shane Wright made it very clear he was going to make people know they made a mistake. So you know Wright's pumped, and he'll be flying flat out. And this guy's probably wandering around going, what's the big deal? Somebody had to be picked first. Like, he may not totally have grasped the, um, uh, the consequences of not starting well. <clears throat> I'm, not, I'm not trying to skate around the question. <clears throat> but you certainly got to give a guy from Europe that's been taken that high, you know, more than three exhibition games. By Christmas time? If he's got a goal and, and two assists and he's minus 32, well, you know what? You better figure out where to send him because it's not going to work if he's that bad. And if you remember Alexander Dake's famous quote, and Todd Harvey and Chris Kratt and two local guys got picked. Uh, I think Kratz was third overall and Harvey was tenth overall. Um, said nobody ever remembers who was picked second. Well, in that draft, the only reason they remember Dake was first because he was such a bust. Yeah, and his uh, his promotional ads in a nurse's outfit didn't help uh-huh. his image much either. No, <laughs> it's anyway, just, I, 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 this kid's got till Christmas. But if it's a flop, boy, there's been a few of them, and and the Habs have had a few. Wickenheiser, uh, yeah, instead of Denny Savard, yep, right, and a French kid. You know they, you know the Habs like getting the best French players, and still like to do that. And that was a that was a bomb too compared to Savard. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's at the point where you can start judging this kid yet. However, um, again, you're right. It's not exactly like Montreal is a docile hockey market. Every single preseason game that he doesn't perform only ratchets up the pressure by double, probably. Uh, oh, it's a tough town. It's a tough town. It's going to be really, like he, I don't know. I don't, I mean, again, he may turn out to be spectacular and I think it's way too early to make this kind of judgment, but it is amazing to me how much angst already there seems to be in Montreal about this guy, that he has not come here already flying, that it's been such well, a, such a slow start. You're uh, you are not this type of columnist in my opinion, but there are columnists that like to call people out early on and there may be some in the Montreal media that said what were you thinking when you took this guy this could be a colossal mistake well those guys can now smell the blood right like if there if there's writers that 
and media people that thought it was a mistake, they are now all over this, uh, probably to an extent that's unfair to the kid. But they will be all over it, and that can eat a kid up, too. If he, I don't know how his English is. I hope he can't read <laughs> because there's probably some things that aren't very favorable being written about him after three exhibition games. Yeah, it's, and that can uh, it's too. It's going to be it's going to be tough for him for sure. Don, I don't know if you saw the NFL game yesterday. This was one of the funniest things I've ever seen in sports. But I'm wondering if this has ever happened to anybody on one of your teams. Uh, DK Metcalf uh, of Seattle in the NFL. Um, they sent out a cart for him to drive him to the dressing room, not because he had an injury, but because he had to go to the bathroom really badly. And afterwards, he tweeted out. That clinch walk wouldn't have made it, so he needed the cart. <laughs> ever, ever had anybody on your team leave the bench because they said, "Coach, I'm sorry, I, I just, I, 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 I gotta go." Uh, I've had them leave the bench and not even turn around and say, "I'm sorry, I gotta go." They just go. <laughs> and I turn around, I look at Tuna, and so what's going on? <laughs> you find out at the end of like you know they they tell you that they've had a bit of the flu. Well. First of all, you don't want them around the other guys. But, yes, it's happened, and they don't usually take the time because they haven't got it to explain very much, and you just kind of work through it. You know, I, I, I don't know what you want to talk about in a couple seconds, but I want to bring up that conversation we had about the Dolphins quarterback. Oh, yes. Well, it looks like the NFL are trying to fix that problem. They fired some people, got the, right, because the guy was obviously yep. concussed. And it sure looks like he got it. Well, he is again. now. He is now, and uh, that's that's a bad look on a league that big. I'll tell you that they're going to have a little trouble getting out of that mess. Yeah, it's uh, and then yesterday there was a story that one of the players got diagnosed and was back on the field. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't get it. I would have thought that when you had the kind of lawsuit or settlement or whatever that the NFL had for the millions and millions of dollars, I would have thought that would have been the kind of thing that as a, as businessmen, and they all are businessmen, you would say, we're not going to let that happen again. But apparently it, it doesn't seem anyway that the message has really resonated, but who knows? Who knows? Anyway, uh, Don Robertson, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. And uh, we'll talk to you on Monday. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks, Scott. Have a great week. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.